This podcast is an unedited excerpt from a live MCLE webcast. See the episode notes for details about the speakers and links to the program's full video and audio recording. Get access to everything MCLE offers for one low subscription fee with the MCLE Online Pass. Learn more at www.mcle.org slash online pass. Please note that MCLE's products, services, and communications are offered solely as an aid to developing and maintaining professional competence. The statements in this recording may not apply to your circumstances, and no legal, tax, accounting, or other professional advice is being rendered by MCLE or by its speakers. For full terms and conditions, see MCLE's website. Thank you so much for that, Victoria. I think, um, you know, in in many of the uh, cities around the Commonwealth, we see these gang designations as being used to criminalize people based on their where they're from, the color of their skin, the neighborhood that they live in, the people that they hang out with, um, the sports teams that they like. Um, and we see those designations being used to supplement or even create reasonable suspicion or probable cause for the police to justify, to try to justify street encounters, car stops, searches of homes, um, and the various kinds of investigation and information gathering and evidence gathering that they use to try to put our clients in prison. Um, I'm going to talk specifically about social media spying and the way that uh, we've seen that play out over the last couple of years in Massachusetts and the way that uh, the courts have addressed it so far and sort of some of the ongoing challenges to that. So <clears throat> lots of social media. I put MySpace on here kind of as a joke. Uh, you know, one of the functions of this format is that I can't see all of you laughing, but maybe you're all too young to know what MySpace is. Um, so there's a lot of different types of social media apps that the police monitor and um, gather evidence from and try to use as evidence in a variety of different ways in uh, criminal court. Um, Snapchat is the one that I'm going to talk the most about because that's the one that I've been the most involved in litigating. And I think the, um, that our appeals courts have addressed the most in the last couple of years. Um, but the the general principles of this conversation, I think, apply to all of these. And I think as um, just given the amount of time that it takes for our appeals courts and our courts in general to deal with legal issues and evidentiary issues related to electronic and social media platforms and electronic evidence, I think by the time our courts have caught up and have issued decisions explaining how we deal with a certain kind of social media platform, that's not going to be the social media platform that anybody's using anymore and will be on to something else. Um, so what are the police looking for in this monitoring of social media? Um, most of what we see is we see the, this monitoring being done by, uh, specialized policing units or gang units. You know, they're not always called gang units. The state police has their own terms for it. Um, different cities have their own terms for it. In Boston, it's called the Youth Violence Strike Force to try to not be associated, I assume, to try to not be associated with the name of, you know, the name gang unit. Um, but essentially, you know, we have these gang units all across the state that are monitoring young people, mostly people, almost exclusively people of color on social media. And what they say, um, what, what, what 
police have said in testimony at motions to suppress and in affidavits supporting search warrants is that they are looking for uh, evidence of serious drug crime and gun crime and violence, right? This is the language that they use to justify the existence of, of these gang units. Um, and it's the same language that they use to justify the way that they uh, spy on people on social media. So who's being spied on? Um, many people use social media, right? There's no, uh, <clears throat> many people use social media. Um, in, in one of the cases that, that's dealing with sort of the ongoing question of whether the way that these techniques and these investigative schemes are being used, whether they violate the Equal Protection Clause, one of those cases is Gummel versus Dilworth, which is a Snapchat case. Um, and in that case, uh, the preliminary information that we were able to gather in Suffolk County was back, this was back in 2018, was that the, of the criminal cases that we were able to identify in Suffolk Superior Court and in the Boston Municipal Court um, throughout Suffolk County, we were able to identify 20 cases where people were being prosecuted for firearms or serious gun, serious drug charges related to Snapchat investigations. And of those cases, 17 of the defendants were black and three were Latinx and zero were white. Um, we know certainly that that is not reflective of the demographics of the overall users of social media apps, right? Um, but overwhelmingly, the people being spied on um, by these gang units on social media also reflect the people who they pull over in traffic stops. It reflects the people who they do FIOs or stop and frisks of, um, which is mostly or almost predominantly young people of color. Um, and within that population, also mostly people who are male identified. So what do they do? Um, the cops create these uh, fake accounts that they use to watch people. Um, and our understanding of how they do that is still developing, but they make accounts using fake names um, with, with the Snapchat application and with other social media apps. Usually there's some kind of um, user image that's associated with the account. For Snapchat, we'll talk more about this, but those user images are called bitmojis, which are sort of like cartoon character um, images that don't necessarily look like a real person. Uh, so they create these accounts and then they go and make friend requests. They try to um, get people to accept friend requests using these fake accounts and infiltrate, you know, Snapchat groups, um, you know, when people for those of you that aren't super familiar with social media evidence, I was not when I started doing this. Um, there are, within the platform, people can message individual friends, but also there can be groups or parties or hangouts where uh, there's a larger number of people that are all communicating with each other. And so trying to infiltrate those groups, um, get invited into those groups, and then make friend requests of everybody who's in the group in order to be able to, to monitor more and more of the people who are uh, putting up posts uh, on, so on the social media application. Now, Snapchat is designed for the posts to be ephemeral. They're designed for the posts to disappear after a period of time. Usually it's 24 hours. Um, so there is something about the nature of the communication on Snapchat that indicates a desire to have it be private and that indicates a desire not to have it be permanently available to other people. But so what, uh, what the police have generally done that what we found in Discovery that they're generally doing is they'll use two cell phones um, 
one of the cell phones will have a snap the snapchat account on it and they'll take a picture or a video of the posting with another phone um, this of course raises the question of are they using personal cell phones for that are they using work issued cell phones for that and are we able to get access to those cell phones and if there's some justification to look at whether or not the way that they did the recording or um, how they were monitoring the account um, if there's some issue with how that all happened, right? And whether or not we can get access to the, to the phone. But so they make these recordings and then they preserve them in some way. Um, and we tend to get them in discovery in criminal cases uh, if the evidence is being used to justify a stop or a search. Um, occasionally they'll try to use the video themselves, the, the video itself to um, establish possession of contraband. So what do they do with this stuff? Um, oh, and I will say, I see a couple questions coming in in the chat. I'll address those in a minute, but I'm gonna I'll keep going for a minute. Um, so how is the evidence being used? The evidence is being used to support search warrant applications. Um, the observations that the police make on these social media apps are being used to support search warrant applications, to support warrantless stops, either people on foot or people in cars to support other sorts of in ongoing investigations. It's also used to do social network mapping, right? So the, the connections that they see and the friend groups that they see, these are things that can be used to give people points in the gang database, for example. This is also used, you know, there's this, this phrase of predictive policing, of uh, using information that you gather in order to anticipate where crime may be happening. Um, in some of the court filings, justifying the use of Snapchat in some um, parts of the state. Part of what's been said is that the ability to watch the conversations that are happening on social media allows the police to predict and deploy and anticipate places where there may be violence and go to those places before it happens as a way to try to intervene. And sometimes the evidence, so, and so all of those things are used, those first five categories are used to justify the, um, as a basis for some other police encounter, right? As a basis for some other police action. Um, but they also sometimes are using the videos themselves as a basis for the criminal charges. So there have been some prosecutions where the police have used, have charged the person for possession of a firearm, for example, based on seeing the person have a firearm in a video. Um, as opposed to using the video to justify a stop, and then prosecuting the person for the evidence that they find uh, while the person has been stopped. So Aaron, Aaron asked in the chat um, about whether there's a mapping out of gang identification and databases other, in other places in the Commonwealth. And this seems like a good, a good moment to address that. Um, there, is, there is mapping of some of those things. The information about the way that different police departments categorize people and assigned point systems um, tends to be sort of gathered by practitioners in each of those places. There was a recent report that Citizens for Juvenile Justice put out called We Are Prey about police, gang policing in New Bedford um, that documents patterns of monitoring, it documents uh, the race impacts of the stop and frisks that have happened and the investigations that have happened there. Um, and, one of the striking things about that report is it found that I believe, if I remember correctly, 10 or there were 10 
officers who were responsible for 50% of the street encounters. Um, and that two of those officers were responsible for almost half of the encounter, street encounters for people under the age of 18 years old. Uh, so there is information about other, other places where uh, police are using gang designations. I think part of the reason why we have more information about Boston is because there's a bias towards, you know, some of the some of the civil suits that have happened about information tend to come from organizations that are based in Boston. Um, but there has been a lot of litigation in other parts of the state as well. So just to talk a little bit more about the um, evidence and considerations of how the evidence is used. Commonwealth versus Knight is an appeals court case that came out this year that talks about how uh, to authenticate the use, how to authenticate Snapchat videos or social media videos that are observed by officers. In that case, uh, the officer did use a very similar technique to what I described, which is seeing the video on Snapchat using another phone to record the video. And then um, turning that video over in discovery. And the officer testified uh, at the, in a hearing about both seeing the video on Snapchat, about having followed the person who was posting the video on Snapchat and having recorded the video. Um, but that case has sort of more of a robust conversation about what it takes to authenticate uh, the use of those videos as well. One of the other considerations for the use of this evidence is the reliability of the observations that are being made. So um, sometimes police will say, well, I saw a gun on Snapchat and it's the same gun that we found in the park. It's the same gun that we found in the car, whatever it is. And so there's a real opportunity there to challenge the reliability of those claims, whether or not you actually can see with enough specificity the thing in the Snapchat recording in order to be able to link it to some other actual tangible physical evidence that was recovered. Um, and when people are prosecuted for uh, firearms specifically or drugs that are seen on a social media application, how do they establish operability? How do they establish that it's actually drugs? How can they make a connection between the thing that they see and the thing that they're charging the person for? Um, Commonwealth versus Carrasquillo is a case that came out this year also. It's a 2022 case that discusses uh, whether or not people have an expectation of privacy in their social media posts. This is specifically a Snapchat case, and I'll talk more about that in a little bit, but I just want to flag that the issue of expectation of privacy is something that comes up a lot in these cases because um, the posts that are being observed are posts that people are sharing. Right, so that raises a question about whether or not there's an expectation of privacy in that sharing and whether or not there's a search associated with that. Um, I'm just gonna look at the questions for one moment because I wanna be able to address them as, as they come through. Um, hopefully I'll, I'll answer the other questions that are posted right now, but if I don't get to them, we'll come back, uh, we'll come back at the end of the presentation. So I'm gonna talk for a few minutes about Commonwealth versus Dilworth. Um, this is a case that's still pending. It's a case that's been up to the single justice on appeal twice and the full bench of the SJC once. Um, and Commonwealth versus Dilworth is a case where we're litigating an equal protection claim about the decision about the decision of who the police target in the first place on social media. Um, so it's a case that is at, at this point the the litigation is independent of a claim of search and seizure. Um, partly that's connected to the ruling in Carrasquillo, which we'll, we'll, we'll come back to, um, where they found that there was not 
a expectation of privacy in the Snapchat post in that case. Um, but independent of search and seizure protections, our clients also enjoy equal protection uh, protections. Equal protection relief is not tied to whether there was a search or seizure. Um, equal protection is litigated in a variety of different ways, right? There, um, a selective prosecution claim is litigating the decision, whether the prosecutors are making prosecutorial decisions based on somebody's membership in a protected class that's independent of a search and seizure. Uh, you know, Batson or Torres claims related to equal protection violations in the jury selection process are independent of a search and seizure. So, so what we're litigating in Dilworth is whether or not race is a motivating factor, as the court described in Long, whether or not race is a motivating factor in the decision about who the police follow on social media in the first place. Because the decisions that they make about who they follow on social media also are going to reflect who they're able to observe, right? It's like putting um, race-based blinders on. So you're only monitoring a certain group of people. So the only crimes that you're going to see are the crimes that are committed by those that group of people. But the blinders themselves make it so you don't see the crimes that are committed by other groups. So in Commonwealth versus Dilworth, we filed an affidavit um, documenting what I mentioned earlier, that in Suffolk County, of the 20 cases we were able to identify, 17 of those cases had black defendants and three had Latinx defendants and none of the defendants were white. Uh, the discovery motion was filed both as a Rule 14 and a Rule 17 motion. The information that we were seeking was information that was held by the police department as part of the investigation. Um, so I think that it should fall under Rule 14, uh, but in the decision that was, the original decision that was made in the trial court in Dilworth, the court ruled that it was uh, going to be produced under Rule 17. So um, I mentioned this case has gone up and down through the courts a couple of times. The original discovery decision um, was in 2019. Um, that's the first citation here. Uh, and what was ordered in that was the Commonwealth was ordered to produce and the police department was ordered to produce the supplemental police reports that in Boston are called Form 26 reports, but the supplemental police reports that describe the um, the use of Snapchat in cases. When we first started seeing these cases, the police reports never said that it was a Snapchat investigation. The police report said, due to information learned over the course of an investigation, we went to such and such place and searched such and such person and we found a gun. And it was only in supplemental reports that we got in, in ongoing discovery once the case was being prosecuted that we were able to learn that uh, they use Snapchat as an investigatory tool. So the original, the 2019 Commonwealth versus Dilworth order allowed us to get access to the, those supplemental reports that documented the use in Snapchat in the pending cases for a, a one year period of time surrounding uh, Mr. Dilworth's case. That was appealed. A single justice upheld the discovery order and that was appealed to the full bench of the SJC. And the SJC in 2020 found that it was not an abuse of discretion for the single justice to uphold the discovery order. And so the discovery order was upheld and that, that material was turned over. Uh, Dilworth just went back to the SJC uh, and we got a ruling in 2022, which I'll talk about in a minute as well, um, specifically related to the Bitmoji and usernames of the 